So what I would like to do first is I would like to begin by thanking Aristotle. I understand that the second years, the sophomores have just begun to read the Deanima. So I would like to remind us of what the Deanima says. And for the first year freshman students, this is what you have to look forward to next year. So we're going to thank Aristotle. And this is the translation that I'm going to be referring to with uh, in the appropriate uh, table, as you'll see in a second. So we'll have to begin by with a very classic philosophical question, at least in the perennial tradition. What is a soul? And for Aristotle, you have it, the first grade of actuality of a natural body having life potentially in it. This is from book two of the De Anima. And elsewhere in the De Anima, he will also talk about it as the essence of a particular sort of body. Now, the way I explain it when I teach it is, it's an explanation for life. So if I ask, you know, if I say, okay, why did this drop? You're gonna say gravity, and then I'll ask, why is Marie alive? What's the difference between Marie and the table? She has soul, the table does not. And so soul is explanation for life in the way that gravity can explain particular behaviors. So how many kinds of souls are there? And uh, the classical tradition, the Aristotelian tradition, are going, uh, is going to distinguish the kinds of souls by basically looking at faculties, capacities, and powers. And this is the root of the disputed question that we're examining today. So this is a table that I got from this book. And you can see, um, so you can see basically what happens is that the Aristotelian tradition is going to divide uh, the faculties in nutrition, perception, and then thought. We're going to remove desire for a moment. And uh, you've got plants and then two different kinds of animals, the immobile animals and the mobile animals, and then we are over on the right-hand side. And the distinguishing faculty is perception. So where you have immobile animals, you're talking here about sponges, you have contact senses, and then you have the mobile animals, you have the distant senses. And the question really is whether or not this distinction between plants and animals is true. That's really what we're looking at here today. And so it's important that we talk about sense, sense perception. What exactly is it? So again, from the De Anima, perception comes about in the course of being moved and being affected. But of course, it has to be more sophisticated than that because thermostats are uh, moved and affected by the environment. So um, it's caused by the perceptible object acting on the sense organ. This is the classical Aristotelian uh, definition. And uh, you have these proper objects for the sense perception, color, sound, odor, flavor, and tangible qualities. And then you have the five different senses on the right. So you see here, you've got a system, you know, you've got an entire framework to analyze sense perception. And so the question here, and this is, uh, we were just, John and I were talking about this at lunch. So this is, I understand that the sophomores are at book seven, uh, I'm sorry, chapter seven, book two. So you're gonna get this later. Perception is the capacity to receive perceptible forms without the matter, just as the wax receives the seal of a signet ring without the iron or gold. And in many ways, I think Dr. Marie George and I are really going to be debating this. What exactly does this mean to receive a perceptible form? And so how do we know if something is capable of sensation? 
And so what I'm going to do is uh, uh, an Aristotelian, and because I'm primarily a Thomist, this is, the, this is the principle I'm going to follow. Acts reveal potencies, acts reveal natures. So we have to look at what something does in order to figure out what it is. And so that's what I'm going to do. So let's do Aristotle. And what I mean by that is Aristotle's approach, as he articulated it on, in his uh, work on youth and aging, is by empirical observation and by inference. And that's how he actually does what he does, which is why I'm not a Platonist. I'm a molecular biologist, so I'm very empirical. That's why I'm Aristotelian through and through. I have brothers who are mathematicians, and they are always Platonist. There's something about that. Uh, you know, numbers, whoa, genes right here. So um, we're going to work on this. And so what I thought I'd do is I'm going to display predator-prey relationships. And let's talk about those predator-prey relationships. So here you're going to have the predator and the prey. And I'm going to have a video of it. So let's watch it. Okay, now, let me ask a question. Is a cheetah capable of sensation? How many of you think that a cheetah is capable of sensation? Now, why? <laughs> right? So let, let me, let's, let's get it from the floor here. Let's get it from the floor. An undergrad, yes, from the middle. Right, so what you saw there is it's predator and prey it's very directed and it's very specific. You could actually see he was looking for that, that uh, Thompson gazelle and the cheetah went after it. He basically maneuvered his way until he got his prey, okay? All right, now, and the question now is, uh, does a cheetah have a sense organ? We presume it does precisely because the empirical data suggests that it has sense. So we actually infer the existence of the sense organ precisely to do that. So Aristotle will say you have to begin with what's familiar to move to what's not familiar. So we're going to move to something that's probably not as familiar. So the predator here is Lacrimaria and the prey is Halteria. And I want you to look at this. And we're going to do the exact same thinking process uh, that we just did. So this is Lacrimaria right there in the middle. And the Halaria, Halteria is on the very top. So let's take a look.
Now, is the lacrimaria capable of sensation? How many of you think it is? Why? It hunts. Not on, now, one of the things I have to add to this, the commentary is, it actually is very specific. It sprays very specific. It will look for very specific cells. And then it actually poisons that cell. I don't know if you realize it grabbed it. It's, so some have called this uh, the snake of the microscopic world because it will grab it. It, it injects it with poison. And then it just taps, a lit, taps along to see whether or not uh, it actually is moving, and then it swallows it alive, okay? Now, so most of you said yes. Now, here's the question. Does Lacrimaria have a sense organ? Now, th this, is, this is the interesting part. This is a single cell. That organism that you saw is a single-celled organism, and, uh, but as most of you see, it appears to sense, because it's able to hunt, now, it does not have any nerves. It doesn't have a brain. I mean, that's, you saw that's the cell, right? That's the one cell. And it does all of that, and it just hunts around, and it, it's a predator. And it will just go, and it, it actually is an amazing, the, we've only started studying the biology of this organism. For example, it switches sexes several times a day, um, mating type. And there are reasons why it does this. But again, what I wanted to point out is that the lacrimaria here, the assumption is that this lacrimaria has a sense organ, even though we have not identified it yet. Now, so notice sense organ must be an analogous term. It cannot just mean brain. It cannot mean nervous system. What it means is that there is something there that explains why the behavior of this organism is the way it is. Now, what we're going to do now is I've got to ask this question because it's going to come up. Is the lacrimaria aware of its prey? Right, this is a very interesting word, aware. And we're going to talk because, because when we get to forms and how forms are impressed upon us, you have a single cell. Is that single cell aware of its prey? Now, most of the audience agreed that it appears to sense, it appear, appears to perceive, it's hunting. But is it aware? I would say it's not aware, uh, because otherwise awareness is reduced to a single cell, which we have no, there is no account of that actually happening. So, so it doesn't seem like this organism, which hunts for specific prey, is aware of its prey. But it appears, we know it touches the prey, and it's able to interact with that. We're still beginning to understand what happens. So now we're going to move to another predator prey. This is a plant. And this is the doter. And the doter has an incredible taste for tomato. It only attacks tomato plants. And so what you're going to see is you've got a tomato plant on one side, and you've got basically corn on the other, a monocot. And if you put the doter seedling in the middle, you'll see what it does. It has to figure out which one it's going to attack. So here we go.
and it's called a vampire plant because what will happen is it will now climb up onto that tomato, wrap itself around the tomato, and then pierce the tomato's uh, outer layer in order to suck out the juices of that plant. Again, there's a predator-prey relationship here. But I want you to look at what happens next because we're trying to understand how this doter actually is able to identify tomato because the other, the other plant on the other side was a corn. It simply ignored that. So we're going to have this other video here. So there, what you see is we've identified the precise odor that attracts this particular plant. And this, so you, you can do this kind of experiment, and what happens is 100% of the time, especially with purified uh, molecules from the plant, basically this doter will head directly for that odor. Because it knows, and it will not, it will not live, actually, so one of the things you need to know is, it only does this when it comes out of its seed, and if it doesn't connect with a tomato plant within a few days, it simply dies. It has no roots. So this is a life or death choice that it has to make. So now the question that, um, you know, is the doter capable of sensation? Right? So you've, you, you see this is where you now have to, we're moving from a cheetah to a single cell predator, and now we have this plant. And this plant is able to discriminate based on odors its particular prey. Now, how many of you would, if I ask, is the doter capable of sensation? How many of you would say yes? See, this is the plant, not this plant. So there are only very specific plants that have very specific odors. Now, the question that I, I want to, I want to uh, highlight is does the doter have a sense organ? Well, we don't know yet, in the same way we don't know for the lacrimaria because we haven't done the kind of experiments that we need to unravel the actual genetic mechanism that's involved there. But the assumption is because it behaves this way, there's going to be something that allows it to behave this way. Otherwise, you won't be able to explain the behavior that you see. Now, if you look at uh, the objection raised by Aristotle himself in the Dianima, he will say, it is evident also why plants do not perceive, although they have a soul part, and are affected in a way by tangible objects. For instance, they are both cooled and heated. The reason is that they do not possess a mean, that is the sort of principle that receives forms of perceptible objects. Rather, they are affected together with the matter. Now, one of the things I've discovered is this is a highly contentious uh, text. There are so many interpretations of this. But the idea here is that it's not specific. When the plant gets hot, the plant gets hot, the plant gets cold, the plant gets cold. But one of the, one of the things I wanted to show you about the doter is their specificity. 
its tomato and it's the, the odor of the tomato to which this plant responds. And it responds by growing in the direction of that target because it's basically prey. So our plant's capable of sensation. So what I'm gonna do here, this is my last, basically last slide, is just to show you phototropism, but phototropism sped up. Now one of the things you might have, you know, you, in biology, you might have learned this in high school, plants are attracted to light. But what they didn't tell you is it's attracted to a very specific color of light. It's only blue color that does this. If you change the color of the light, the plant actually doesn't respond. So it's again very specific. And so let's take a look. So this is, um, So I want to suggest, again, this is a very specific response to a very specific color. We're just not talking about light, it's a blue light. If you shone red light on this plant, you wouldn't be able to recapitulate what you just saw. And so that specificity suggests that the, that the perceptible form in which we understand classical colors, classical odors, can actually be translated in an analogous way to plants. So, oops. So I believe, so this is by my view, that the empirical evidence demonstrate that plants can sense because they can respond to specific odors and specific colors. This to me is what appears to define sense perception as we understand it, not as Aristotle would have it, but as human beings. The question now and the challenge now is how we would have to adjust the Aristotelian framework to incorporate the, it's not that it's wrong, right? It's not wrong. It has to be adjusted and revised in light of new knowledge from the 21st century to account for, in the way that Aristotle talked about mobile versus immobile plants, can we talk about plants that belong to two categories, sensing and non-sensing? Thank you very much. So, do plants have sensation? Nego. <laughs> the first thing that we know, the thing that we know first and best is ourselves. We know what sensing is, at least in a confused way, because we ourselves sense. What does it mean to sense? It means to know individual colors, sounds, and other sensibles. Since we have another kind of knowledge, intellectual knowledge, I'm going to use the word aware in speaking about sense knowledge. So here, right away, you see a difference with Father Ostriacher, right? So to me, to sense is to be aware, okay? So to see is to be aware of specific instances of color, if only color on a grayscale, and smelling is awareness of this or that odor. It's not possible to define sensing in terms of something better known. So Aristotle attempts to define it partly in terms of what it's not, 
It's the reception of sensible forms of things without the matter. I think that Aristotle means to contrast sensing with a purely physical change. A coal heats a poker. The poker doesn't turn into coal, but it becomes like coal in being hot. The poker receives the same type of accidental form that the coal has, but not the matter of the coal. However, it receives this accidental form in the same manner that the coal possesses it. It, like the coal, is hot. By contrast, sensing is not a matter of the sense coming to possess the same type of accidental form in the same manner. Rather, the more the sense becomes physically like the thing it senses, the less sensitive it becomes. So for example, when one's hand becomes the same temperature as the water it's in, one no longer feels the temperature of the water. For this reason, John of St. Thomas understands the reception of form without matter to refer to a knower's receiving the form of another as other while remaining itself. Feeling an object's heat is other than becoming hot oneself. Thus, if one is to claim that being is sentient, it is necessary to provide evidence that something more than a physical change has taken place in it. We humans are not only able to sense, but we're also able to sense that we sense. That is, we're consciously aware that we sense. Though sometimes we're not consciously aware of what we sense, for example, that the pavement is uneven, if we're sensing something, we can become conscious that we're doing so. In addition to knowing that we sense, we also know that food nourishes us and that we grow or have grown. However, we have no consciousness of these activities which indicate that they do not involve sense perception. We know that we grow not because we sense ourselves growing, nor because we sense the underlying processes which result in growth. We know we grow because of comparisons we make. I'm now taller than Ma, or my pants don't fit me anymore. Similarly, while we're aware of how food tastes and feels, we're not aware of what goes on in nutrition once we swallow the food. We're aware of feeling weak if we don't eat, and we know that excretion in some way depends on eating, and there are other clues as well. But exactly what goes on in nutrition does so without us sensing it. And this is also the case for the production of sperm and the maturation and release of eggs. These vegetative activities would not go on any better for us being aware of them, Indeed, being aware of them would be distracting. I take our own experience in regard to nutrition, growth, and the production of germ cells as a baseline for what goes on in other organisms. Namely, if these activities go on in us without sensation, then plainly there's no need for sensation in order to perform these activities. From the point of view of finality, there's reason to think that other organisms are not going to be endowed with sense perception to execute these same fundamental activities for this would be superfluous. Now, one might object that the list of activities given above is not complete. One needs to add defense from harmful agents, adaptation, and homeostasis. In the case of adaptation, Father Nicanor maintains, or at least did so in the past, and I quote, modern biologists would challenge this account that there's a nutritive soul that is other than the sensitive soul because all living things have to respond and to adapt to their environments to survive. And they do this by sensing different external cues. Thus, all living things must have sensitive souls, end quote. Many adaptations, however, take place without sensation. For example, acclimatization to both altitude and temperature. What happens in the case of acclimatization to altitude 
is that the body needs a certain amount of oxygen to carry on vital processes, but the lower pressure of higher altitudes makes it more difficult for oxygen to enter our vascular systems. Adaptation consists in changes in the body that help overcome this difficulty. What are these changes? And this is a quote from a biologist. Do you have it on your handout? When we travel to high mountain areas, our bodies initially develop inefficient physiological responses. There is an increase in breathing and heart rate to double, to, to as much as double. Later, a more efficient response normally develops as acclimatization takes place. Additional red blood cells and capillaries are produced to carry more oxygen. The lungs increase in size to facilitate the osmosis of oxygen and carbon dioxide. There's also an increase in the vascular network of muscles, which enhance, enhances the transfer of gases, end quote. So the changes producing the acclimatization are not triggered by sense perception of lower air pressure. It's lower air pressure itself that triggers them, and they go on without us sensing them. Thus, it is not true that adaptation always requires sensation. Even machines are capable of changing behavior in response to environmental changes so as to function better. For example, one can train Siri to more accurately convert one's voice to text. Thus, observation of this type of adaptive response, independent of other knowledge of the being in question, does not even allow one to conclude the being's alive, much less sentient. Homeostasis is maintained without sensation. For example, sodium and glucose levels in the blood are regulated without being sensed. As for defense from enemies, while doing so sometimes requires sensation, there are many examples when it's not required. For example, when our immune system fights off germs without us being conscious of it. In principle, then, a living thing could carry on all the basic life activities without sentience, and thus having sentience for the purpose of doing so would be superfluous. Some reason would have to be given for why a specific defense or a specific adaptation required sensation, and that's what Father is trying to do. All right, so how does one judge the living thing other than human senses? Certainly observing its behavior is a key element. The behavior is not the sense perception, but certain behaviors would be inexplicable in the absence of sense perception. One example is an earthworm holding something in the right orientation to get it into its hole. As Darwin observes, and I quote, if worms are able to judge, having drawn an object close to the mouth of their burrows, how best to drag it in, they must acquire some notion of its general shape, end quote. Plainly, in observing the organism's behavior, one, must, one needs also to determine what is provoking or stimulating that behavior. Is it the visible, is it the audible, or what? Bats catch insects, but not because the insects are visible. Another thing crucial to knowing whether a living thing senses is observing that it has a sense organ. We notice other organisms sense organs most readily when they're similar to ours. In any case, if an organism does in fact sense, it must have a sense organ. With these criteria in mind, let us now consider plants in more detail. At the basis of claims that plants are sentient are their various motions. Most of these motions are the result of growth. For example, differential growth explains why many plants turn towards the sun and why certain flowers open and close. And so in the past, Father Nicanor argued, and I quote, the tip of the coleoptyl is the part of the young growing plant that allows the plant to sense and to respond to light, specifically blue light, by growing in the direction of light. 
If you cut off the tip, then the plant will ignore the blue light and continue to grow straight up. In the same way, I can destroy the few light-sensing cells in a worm, and when I do this, the worm will ignore the light. If you know that you're disrupting sensing in the worm because it now responds differently to light by removing the light-sensing organ, then you have to say you're also disrupting sensing in the plant because it now responds differently to light after you disrupt its sense organ." End quote. However, a 2013 article entitled Phototropism, Translating Light into Directional Growth explains what occurs in purely photobiochemical terms. The blue light photoreceptors in the coleoptal tip called phototropins consists of a protein with two chromophores embedded in it. And that's what you see on the handout, okay? So you see the squiggle there, okay? The squiggle is the protein part and the thing on the, on the inside is the chromophore, okay? So what happens is light strikes the, the, the chromophore and it causes a, a covalent bond to form between the protein and, and the chromophore. When that covalent bond forms, what it does is it changes the shape of the protein. And the change of the shape of the protein then translates into other biochemical changes within the cell, which eventually causes the auxin gradient to shift to the dark side of the plant. Auxins are growth hormones, and therefore that, the dark side of the plant is going to grow more, and the plant will bend towards light. Okay? It's not the plant seeing blue, but rather the absorption of a photon and the subsequent changes that this causes that leads to growth. Plainly, if one removes any part of the chain that leads ultimately to growth, growth will not occur. But this has no bearing on whether the sensing of light has taken place. Some reason has to be given for why sensing blue must be added to the chain of physical causes that are proposed as an explanation for the differential growth. From the point of view of finality, the plant isn't going to react any better for seeing the light any more than we would digest our food better if this was a sense process. The 2011 discovery that melanocytes, the skin cells that produce melanin, contain rhodopsin, a light receptor found in the eye, puts in sharp relief the gratuitousness of attributing sight to plants. Activation of this receptor unleashes calcium ion signals that instigate melanin production. Plainly, we do not see with our skin. Similarly, the activation of the plant's light receptors causes a series of biochemical reactions resulting in a teleological response. There's no reason to say that the plant sees any more than there is to say that we see with our melanocytes. Note that the response of our melanocytes is directional. Directional increase or growth does not require sensing. My opening argument against plant sentience is that we know from our own experience that the basic life activities of nutrition, growth, production of germ cells, homeostasis, as well as self-defense and adaptation in many cases, take place in us without sense perception. And thus, sense perception is unneeded for these activities. Here, I'm arguing that the type of explanation scientists offer in the, case, in the specific case of plants' growth towards blue light indicates that it occurs without sense perception, resulting instead solely from physical changes. Whereas you're aware this is green and that's black. The same type of explanation that's given for plants' growth towards blue light is proposed in other cases of directional growth. For example, plants need to detect where water is in order to send out roots. Now we don't entirely know how roots grow towards water, 
But the type of explanation that is advanced by scientists is along the lines of moisture triggering a physical change that in turn sets in motion a signaling cascade leading to cell elongation. There's no evidence that plants need to sense wetness. Now, I haven't made a complete induction of every response plants make to things in their environment. However, since the type of motion most typical of plants is directional growth, and the explanations typically offered for it do not invoke sensation, the onus is on those who claim that specific plant motions require sensation to provide reasons why this is so. What activity demands that explanation, and what is the sense organ involved? A reduction to the absurd against plant sensing, sensing can be drawn from the fact that cells within the body need to respond appropriately to the internal environment, which is largely constituted by other cells. Cells within the body need to coordinate growth, death, shape change, and movement. It seems arbitrary to say that they're not sensing simply because their receptor ligand interactions and detection of mechanical forces are internal to the body. But then one would have to say that each cell of our body is sensing, unbeknownst to us. And some proponents of plant sentience actually hold this view. And I'm curious to hear whether Father thinks every cell of our body is sensing. Um, all right. So equivocation is sometimes involved in claims that plants are, are sentient. Accounts of how plants achieve directional growth often in ter include terms such as gravisensing and mechanosensation. We need to examine the various ways in which the word and words such as sensing are used. A sensor changes in response to some specific external thing, and generally this change is set up to trigger another change, such as a device being turned on or off. So the Wikipedia defines a thermostat as a component which senses the temperature of a system so that the system's temperature is maintained near a desired set point. Now, of course, the thermostat is not aware of hot or cold. And the same is true for other sensors. They don't sense. They're not aware of motion, wetness, carbon monoxide, and so forth. So usage of sense in their regard is clearly equivocal. Now, there's no special word that names an interaction between a living thing and something in its environment that results in a non-sentient teleological response. We've transferred the words sense and perceive to name such activities and this leads some to assume that the meaning is univocal. In addition to equivocation, there's another kind of faulty reasoning that takes this form. We sense this, the plant responds to this, therefore the plant senses this. For example, we sense a sound, the plant responds to the sound, therefore the plant hears the sounds. Based on that reasoning, Siri hears because it responds to our voice. People are more inclined to make unjustified leaps from detection to sensation when we happen to sense an accident than in cases when we do not. For example, there's less motivation to say that plants see, smell, etc., the exogenous ethylene they respond to, since we do not see, smell, or otherwise sense it. Whereas we can hear the sound of a caterpillar chewing when it's amplified, and so when plants increase chemical defenses against caterpillars in response to exposure to the sound and not to other sounds, Certain people conclude that plants hear. And yes, you heard me correctly. They amplified the sound of caterpillars chewing and the, the plants that heard that sound, they, they upregulated the, the types of toxins that are harmful to those kind of um, organisms. Um, yet the evidence that the plants have a sense organ for hearing is lacking. 
Moreover, the paper is entitled Plants Respond to Leaf Vibrations Caused by Insect Herbivore Chewing. Sound waves are mechanical waves. They cause things that lack hearing to move. Thus, it may simply be the case that the jiggling of the plant by the sound waves triggers a series of reactions in the plant that ultimately results in an increase of defense chemicals in the leaves. Those who claim that hearing is involved need to provide evidence beyond the fact that the plant re responds to specific sound waves. What is the organ and what is the behavior that requires positing awareness? And the same kind of faulty reasoning goes on in the case of one researcher's claim that a certain kind of plant smells odors. Um, this I wrote before I saw the presentation. Um, <laughs> okay, so what is, what is learning and how does it relate to sensing? So at first sight, it seems that if a being learns, that's a sure indication that it's sentient. Okay, that was like my intuition of think and learn, it's got a sense. However, is it possible to define learning in the sense relevant to our discussion in a way that does not include sense perception in its definition? It seems not. Learning means going from non-knowing to knowing, either that something is true or to make or do something. If a thing is incapable of knowing anything to start with, then it cannot learn in this sense of learn. If a thing cannot change its responses to things, plainly it can't learn to do something. However, if it can change its responses, this does not necessarily mean that it can learn in the sense of going from being ignorant to knowing. This is clearest, again, in the case of machine learning. Pandora learns the kinds of songs a user likes based on those that the user previously liked or disliked. Thus, evidence must be given that like changes in activity or response are due to sensing. If one has learned to do something, ordinarily one can do it at a later time. That means one has to remember how one did it. Memory is a word with multiple meanings. In one sense, one can only remember things one knows. In another sense, a computer is said to have a memory because it encodes information which can be subsequently retrieved. But plainly, computers don't know anything. So how is one going to determine that a plant remembers something in the former sense when one is not sure that it knows anything to start with? So there are many interesting cases where plants seem to remember or learn something new, but they all founder upon the lack of evidence that they can know anything at all. Thank you. Okay, so what we're going to do now is... What we're going to do now is we're just going to have a period where Dr. George and Father Ostriaco are going to talk. <laughs> going to talk. I'm not sure why I'm in the middle here. Maybe so I should. <laughs> <laughs> so as you heard, uh, I actually agree completely with Marie's account. And the, so, so the question we're going to have to deal with is about definitions, right? So, so if you define sensing as basically requiring awareness, then clearly plants do not sense. So it's about definition. Which is why when I presented the empirical evidence that I did, I focused in on that microorganism predator-prey relationship. For Lacrimaria is a single-celled organism. There's no way that single-celled organism is aware 
of its target prey. And yet the behavior that we see suggests that it's not, that there's much more going on there than a thermostat or a poker in a fire. Because it's not just directed. I mean, this is the thing, this is so striking, right? It's a, it hunts. The, the, the phenomenon of hunting, of a living thing hunting another demands an explanation. So if you basically say that this phenomena of microscopic hunting is not sensation, because sensation is defined as basically requiring awareness, then I would say yes. But then I would say, then what is going on there? Because that's not just mere nutrition, growth, reproduction, which is the other option we have for basically a purely, so if you, in, the, in the Aristotelian framework where you have just ba basically plain nutrition, growth, and reproduction, uh, there's something else. So either we're going to have to adjust definition or we're going to have to come up with another category. And what's really interesting is you have a non-sensing teleological behavior. So, so but, but now it's really fascinating because if we talk about that non-sensing teleological behavior, which is, I think, akin to what we're talking about. So we, if we define sensing as awareness, and I, I give that to you, then I ask, okay, what exactly is that lacrimaria doing? And you say it's non-sensing teleological behavior. Then I'll say, is that different, therefore? Is it, does it have a different kind of soul, therefore, than the kind of plants uh, that have, well, the, the classical Aristotelian account, which is no sensing whatsoever, and there's no teleological behavior. So, which is why I'm trying to, I'm actually struggling with the, with the more profound question of how to explain certain kinds of behaviors that were not known to Aristotle or to Aquinas, and asking whether or not the categories they present us require not negation, but expansion. Right? And, and if we come up with a non-sensing teleological behavior, I go, let's come up with a new name for that. And we can say that there are some organisms that have this. They might not have sensing, because now sensing is uh, an act that is relegated to a particular kind of animal that has, um, that has higher, uh, that has awareness, right? So, so, you, so just like Aristotle di distinguishes mobile versus immobile animals, maybe we have to distinguish uh, certain animals which are uh, even more rudimentary than sponges and say that they have non-teleological, non-sensing teleological behavior that allows them to hunt and to hunt specifically. Because I think as the students can see, right? So if, if you had no idea of defining sensing with awareness, your experience of just looking at that data where the, where the lacrimarium is hunting for the hilarium, you just go, that's gotta be sensing. So if we, can't, if we say it can't be sensing because sensing requires awareness, then the question is, how else do we, dis dis what word can we come up to describe that? Because it's clearly not just a thermostat, right? So it, it's not a thermostat, so it's not the thermostat it's not the poker in the fire. It's not what the cheetah is doing, but there's something in there that's in between. 
And the question is, what is that? And I'm saying it's sensing analogously understood because I'm saying that some sense with awareness, some sense without. If you want to define sensing as necessitating, necessitating awareness, then I'm willing to give that and say, well, what else, what other, what is this other thing? And well, let's just put it into the, into the Aristotelian category, um, tree of life and just say it's not just a mere plant. Does that make sense? Because I'm trying to figure out how to explain what we can see. Okay, well I guess, is this on? Yeah. yeah. Okay, I, mean, I, I guess my problem is I thought we were going to argue about plants and not about microorganisms. So, because we, we're like, we're supposed to start from what's best known and I've never seen that microorganism before. I mean it's not like, like I see these plants here, right? So I guess I find it puzzling to try to solve the case about plants by looking to an organism which is probably not that well understood. Um, but, so, but given that it's been brought up, I would still want to say that I'm not sure that thing isn't aware. Maybe that thing is aware. I mean, I see one video for, for 60 seconds. I'm supposed to make up my mind it's aware. I think it probably is aware, you know? So maybe, maybe awareness requires less than what we think, because we're usually thinking of awareness in terms of uh, central nervous system or brain and so forth and such like. So maybe, maybe we're wrong about that. But I mean, I don't want to draw a conclusion about these plants here based on a microorganism that's just not really well known. And I think it's a really interesting question, I, and I think it's a question that should be, you well, know. Well, uh, the only reason why I raise but. that is because one of the, well, you, you raised the question about photoreceptors, right? Mm -hmm. And you said that, the, that we can reduce the phototropic behavior of, of plants to alterations in molecules on the surface of that, leading to a covalent bond. I can pretty much tell you that, the, that this, this single-cell lacrimarium, Everything that's going to happen there is at the molecular level, very much akin to what we see in a plant, because there's no other, it's just molecular changes, right? So, so molecules are going to react to external stimuli. In this particular case, it's either molecular touch or it's going to be uh, chemoattractants in the, in, the, in the surroundings. The molecules of that cell will change and the, ch the, ch the cell will behave differently. So, so if you are open to the possibility that this single cell has awareness in some rudimentary form that is attributed to molecular changes of some receptor on the surface of that cell to external stimuli, but then are also very adamant that this cannot be the case for plants when the very same molecular behavior is in play, right? So plants, Again, plants, it's, you're correct, it's photoreceptors. They're changing with response to particular uh, nanometer length of light. You have covalent changes and things happen. Uh, and you have elongation of, 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 of the, the cell. But actually what you see on the other side too with this lacrimarium is exactly the same thing, right? So the cell will elongate. This proboscis is basically, I'm going to go technical here, sorry. Cytoskeletal elements that are being uh, basically extended and retracted. And so it's very similar to the oxen growth that is, be, is driving the, the extension of, of length. So it's basically quantitative, the single cell is just growing back and forth. So if you are open to the possibility that this single cell, when it hunts, 
has a, a rudimentary awareness in order to account for its behavior that suggests its senses, and the molecular mechanisms are parallel between the two, then I, my question is, why a priori are you willing to then reject offhand that the plants have a rudimentary form of awareness that's akin to what we see in this single cell? Does that make sense? Because that's what I'm trying, I'm just trying to understand how to explain this phenomenon we can observe in Aristotelian terms. Well, again, I agree it's a difficult case, but I mean, let me ask you this question. Is, is the phototrope in an eye? I'm sorry? Is the phototrope in an eye? Is the protein with the chromophore embedded in it an eye? Is it an organ of sight? Not in the, not, not, in not a plant. In in the plant. Not if sight understood as like seeing very particular. No, 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 sight at all, any type of sight. Is it an organ of sight? It's a light detector. Okay, I think it's a light detector and not an organ of sight. Right. Yeah. So, 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 so it's, and that's my point in saying the plants don't sense. Well, they wait. detect light, but they don't have to sense the light to, to change. That chromophore doesn't need to be aware of anything at all in order for that covalent bond to form. Right. And it's not an eye. Right, but again, you see, that's why I brought up that example of that microorganism, right? Because, because the exact same thing can be said for that single cell. And in fact, that single cell is much simpler than a multi-organismal plant. And so that single cell will also have molecular changes in response to, in this particular case, the presence or absence of its prey. And so it will, be direct, it will direct its growth towards that prey. The proboscis goes out. It grabs onto it, you can see it drags on, and then it injects into it uh, poisons. The thing basically dies and then it swallows it up. So, so again, right, so do we say that it, it tastes? Does it touch? Does, the, does, that, does that single cell which we saw there, does it touch? What is it doing when it grabs, pulls, pokes, right, to determine whether or not it's alive? If, if you were saying, okay, it doesn't touch, Okay, it's not touching it like I would touch John here, be, um, because clearly I'm aware of that, right? But it's doing something that's analogous to what we do with touch, right? Because it's so directed. See, that's the thing that, that, that's so striking to me as a biologist is that it's sequential, it's directed, it's not programmed in the sense of it's a repetitive behavior over and over again because when it grabs another prey, uh, it's not in the same position. It's going to grab it to another position. It actually seems to be adapt, adapting to the circumstances, not evolutionary adaptation. So, if again, if we're willing to say, if we're, we're going to say, well, that, that single cell organism doesn't touch, I'm like, okay, it doesn't touch like I touch, because, you know, but what exactly is it doing? Is it, it's not a thermostat, it's not a poker in a fire. It's, and what I'm saying is, can we therefore agree there is an analogous account of sensing that does not include awareness that seems to suggest that these rudimentary organisms have a way of interacting with their environment that reminds us of the sensing that we do. But again, we, we don't, because awareness is defined as sense, sensing, is defined as awareness, okay, we'll put that aside. And if we do that, then I would again, plants, you see, this is where I would go, then I will agree with you, plants do not sense in the sense of they're aware, but I would 
propose that they sense in that rudimentary analogous way that we are willing to predicate of this particular organism in the way that it behaves. Well, again, to, to, to me, you're arguing from what's less known to me and to the rest of the, the audience, you know. So let me, let me go back to a different argument I had. So within the, within the body, you have all these receptors, right? And, I mean, cells have tens to 100 receptors each cell, okay? And they have to coordinate themselves, otherwise the body would basically shred itself um, or form blobs of dead cells or, uh, you know, it would be chaos, okay? So why are, you, why are you saying, it seems to me, I hope you're, you're not saying that every single cell senses, but well, it seems to me that if you're going to say that the, the simple fact that you have um, a receptor and it's changed in some manner, shape, or form by something outside, then it's sensing analogously, not quite sure again what that means, but that you would have to say that for what's going on inside the body, that everything, every cell in your body is, is sensing in some manner, shape, or form. So but you, we just don't know it. No, you actually have, you have to, there's a better case that you can make against my argument. Okay, thanks. So the way that you would, the way, the way you would argue actually is you would identify, for example, COVID's everywhere, right? And we know the T lymphocytes and the B, especially the T lymphocytes. So the T lymphocytes, the CTL, CD8, 4, CD8 plus, what they do is they go hunting, right? So they hunt as well. There you go. And they hunt for viruses. Okay. okay. So what happens there is you go, okay, so these particular cells go hunting for viruses. Mm -hmm. So the question now you have to ask me is, do I believe those cells, because they hunt viruses and other pathogens, are sensing? Right? And this is where I would say, well, this is why it's so important for me as I've thought through this, that just like we, we, we predicate sensing of organisms, right? So we, so we talk about organisms per se, right? One of the, so in order to say that uh, organisms sense, so you're saying sen sensing is a, is a property of organisms, I would say yes, individual cells in my body uh, don't sense not because they don't behave as uh, they hunt and they predator prey, but because they're not organisms per se, and, and it's organisms that actually have sensing properly so-called. Because you're, not every single cell will have the capacity to do that, but there are cells that are capable of doing precisely that, right? They, they do hunt. Uh, they hunt for pathogens in the body. Now, do I say they sense? Uh, Again, this is where I would sit down and go, hmm, I have to think about that because we're, we're talking about, are we talking about a part versus a whole? And do we, do we predicate uh, properties of the whole to the parts? Right, so do, does the eye see? Right, so, so we go, no, the eye doesn't see. Technically, I see, right? So, so, so in that case that I would say properly so-called, can we take that relationship and predicate it to... The, intern, the, the cellular interactions that, that, are, that involve hunting, I am actually hunting those cells, uh, the, the virus, but it's through the cells that share the same soul that I do. Because remember, those T lymphocytes are informed by my soul. They don't have their own soul. So it's I am hunting the virus in me. So, so when, when it comes to when you're talking about like all those cells in the body, they don't have their independent souls. I mean, they're informed by my soul, so they're technically not substances in themselves. So when they go hunting, I'm hunting, because it's my soul that's informing 
that T lymphocyte. But why, why aren't you sensing it though? Because you're claiming that you, if you have a receptor ligand interaction, that that's sensing if it's from the outside world. But if it's internally, why aren't you sensing all these different chasing downs of the viruses, et cetera, et cetera? Well, no. So, so I, I'm, I'm just saying that are there certain things I can sense versus not? So um, you brought up, for example, the situation of, of uh, women ovulating. Now, there's actually, I don't know if you know, the, a certain percentage of women can know exactly when they ovulate. Um, I'm just wondering if any of the women in the audience are part of that. <laughs> no, no, this is, a, this is a very interesting thing. So there are women who know, I have a student who, you know, she's walking in the library, she goes, oops, I ovulated on the left ovary. And she can, she can perceive that, she can feel that. Right, she, she, can see, she can perceive that. Now, so, so we, not all of us, not all women, in fact, the vast majority of women cannot perceive that, yeah. right? But there are women who can. So, so but the, is it necessary for that production to occur, for sensation to occur? And if it were, then most women wouldn't be able to ovulate. Well, I mean, you can't control. She, 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 so the women... Who, who, who know they ovulate, they don't say ovulate and then it ovulate. You know, they, right, just, exactly. they, they just know, but they can sense, they can sense that they've ovulated, right? But, but they don't need to do that in order to ovulate. Right, that's, right. My, that's my whole point. So, is that so, so, when, so what happens is that when white blood cells go bouncing around, so when white blood cells actually go hunting, you might not sense that actual hunting but you will know they're hunting because you get a fever. So what happens is your entire body actually responds to that hunting mechanism. Right, but you don't you know they're indirectly. hunting. People didn't know that for centuries that that was going on. All you know is you got a fever. You don't know there's any hunting going on in you. You don't perceive hunting at all. You well, perceive the fever, the result of it. That's correct. Mm -hmm. but, 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 what, but what I'm saying here is exactly, so we're, we're talking about organisms, holes and we're talking about parts and you're asking me are certain parts of my body able to sense and I'm saying qua parts because they're parts they don't really have existence in themselves I am the organism I have the soul so all of those cells have my soul they don't have their own unique souls so it's not like I have individual parts that are sensing each other right but you could have that I, I'm, so, but, but, but moving now to the, the, the question at hand, which is individual organisms with their own souls, right? So their own souls, and they have a life form, they have a life uh, structure, they, they, they have a particular life. To the, and so, and like, just like the lacrimaria and like the daughter, you have plant, you have individual organisms with their individual souls, and integral to their survival appears to be this predator-prey relationship that suggests that that particular soul of that particular organism is able in a teleo uh, teleological way to hunt for a prey. Now, the, the, the argument here is it's non-sensing because sensing requires awareness, yeah. right? And I'm saying, all right, that isn't, that's by, again, the, the definition there is, as, as you presented is, again, we start with the most familiar because sensing to me requires awareness. So I'm going to define sensing in terms of, of awareness. And I'm at my, my view is 
by presenting those videos, I wanted to present another perspective. We have an account of predator prey. We know when we are predators. We certainly know when we are prey. Um, and we know that there's a sensible relationship between predators and prey. And it's not because of our experience as sensing, but as sensed or sensing a, a prey. And so I'm asking, based on that first principle, can we take that and understand what we're seeing here in terms of microorganisms that predator and prey, that predator and prey behavior, as well as a doter plant that appears to have predator prey behavior, and to ask whether or not the requirement for awareness is actually an anthropomorphic account that should be expanded. So it's not, I'm not saying that it's, it's wrong. I'm just saying that there are there scenarios in the, in the living world today where sensing does not need to involve awareness in order to explain the predator-prey relationships that we are aware of in our experience. Again, it makes no sense to me to talk about sensing without talking about awareness. Awareness is simply a more specific word for knowledge. Okay, when you sense, you know. But you can't get around that. And I just use the word aware because we also have intellectual knowledge. So, but you can't get around. The question is, does, does the daughter know that there is a smell there? And what I'm arguing is it doesn't have to know that there is a smell there. All it has to do is detect it and respond in a goal-oriented way. And we know this already happens in the case of bacteria. So bacteria will attack plants. Plants have receptors on their, on their surfaces. The bacteria, they produce different types of molecules, which are ligands, which bind to the receptors on the plant, and then the plant upregulates its defenses against the bacteria. There's no sensing going on. It's simply it detects that the bacteria are there because it's got receptors that then bind those ligands. And so why, I don't see why you have to say that the plant knows there's a bacterium on it. All it has to do is respond, and it's got what it takes in order to respond. Well, no, I think at the end of the day, we just agree to disagree that we have definition. That basically, you have a very, very specific definition of sensing that presupposes awareness. Well, it, do, you, do you agree that sensing means knowledge? Whether you like the word awareness or not, we can scrap the word awareness, but we're talking about knowledge. Whatever sensing is, if it's not a type of knowledge, then you know, we might as well go home. <laughs> right, so, so, so that's what I'm saying. So that microorganism, again, I'll just throw it back to you. Does it know that it... Well, the microorganism, again, I don't know that much about it, but I'm telling you what I do know about plants, okay? Right. So do you think that the plant knows the bacterium is on it? I think it knows it in the same way that particular a microorganism knows that it, it's got its prey, right? So, so again, knowledge is all, again, knowledge, every, all of these terms, you know, what's the prime analogy? How do you talk about referring different kinds of knowledge? So I would say that uh, the earthworm, certainly the C. elegans, the, the, the small worm, it knows where things are in the same way the plant knows. Uh, the bacteria is there. Because the same, actually we know that the, the earthworm, the, not the earthworm, the C. elegans, which is a nematode which feeds on bacteria, it basically has the same kind of receptor system, right? So the worm knows that the bacteria is there in the same way that the plant knows the bacteria is there. One is an animal, the other one is a plant. So, 
and they both respond to the presence of bacteria in different ways. So if we say that the worm, because it's an animal, is able to sense because it knows, as a plant, as this animal knows, then I'm just going to say, well, biologically it's the same thing. So if we say that worm can know that the bacteria is there, then the plant can know the bacteria is there in the same way. So again, you know, is it knowing like we do? Absolutely not. Is it knowing like the dog does? Absolutely not. But we're, go we're, we're going further and further away from neuronal systems. And so when you get way further and further away from neuronal systems, knowledge becomes analogous. Well, again, do you, do you think then that the, the plant sees blue light? Do you think it sees blue light? It knows blue. I, well, I, I'll put it this way. It knows blue light in the same way that worms know blue light. <laughs> right? Well, so, because, again, you have to compare. Because it, it's not like I, the, the plant does not know blue light in the way I know blue light. But neither do most rudimentary animals. They do not know blue light in the way I know blue light. So that's why I have to, it's always comparison. So if, I'm, if, if you're going to say, does the doter know, does the plant know blue light in the way I do? Absolutely not. But it knows blue light in the way that uh, worms know blue light. So, so if you're willing to say, okay, then they can, plants don't sense, then worms don't sense in that way as well. You see, so... so well, but I'm, I'm actually willing. I mean, it depends what worm you're talking about, because they're worms nematodes. and worms. So you're talking, yeah, nematodes, okay. So with nematodes, no, I mean, because earthworms are way smarter than nematodes. Um, <laughs> they... So with the nematodes, I mean, I've been thinking about nematodes a lot since our last debate about the nematodes, and... <laughs> You can tell we're repeats. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm like on the fence about whether they, they taste or smell, but I think I'm pretty sure they have the sense of touch, that they know that something is poking them, that they know that something is hard or soft, that they, they have behaviors which would be very hard to explain without saying that they have the sense of touch, and, and it's the, the sense of touch is the most rudimentary sense. And so like a couple behaviors of the worms are with with a mating behavior, so the male is trying to find the vulva of the female, or the hermaphrodite, rather, um, and so it's, it's sliding up, all right, and if it doesn't feel it on that side, then it pirouettes down, it will slide until ultimately it, it finds the vulva and it inserts its spiculas and they mate. Um, another thing that they, they do is they don't like being in open areas. So they can, they can detect where, they can, they'll move from areas where there are just a few pillars to an area where there are a lot of pillars that are really, really skinny. So they like it to be squishy around them, you know. So I, I, I think that they, they have a sense of touch. Whether they have a sense of smell, I'm still a little on the fence on that. Um, but I do think they have the sense of touch. Well, that's, that's I mean, I do not think, and I, I do not think that they see because we talked about right, that right. a little bit. I think they detect light. Okay, so it's not good for them to get to the surface because something might eat them. Right. So they have light detectors. I do not think they have the sense of sight. Well, I don't think they're aware of sight. Well, so then you've answered my question because okay. the lacrimarium basically has the same uh, mechanism as the worms in terms of figuring out really? the, con the contact. The con because remember it has to swallow it right so right. you saw it swallowing it's not going right. to swallow something that's too big so it actually is able to get a sense, sense of, of its size. prey so that single cell there has touch defined in the way that you just yeah. defined it Seems. but that but but if that's the case that's fascinating to me because 
Again, it's a single cell. Everything is molecular changes. So uh, if we go back to plants, again, you have very similar molecular changes and analogous. And um, so the thing, so someone at dinner asked me, you know, uh, not, 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 not you, you were sitting next to dinner, um, it was earlier, like Venus flytraps. And I said, the, the, the problem with Venus flytraps is they're nonspecific. So anything falls in and they move. So it's, not a, it's just an automatic close, open, and close. The, thing, the reason why I presented the predator-prey relationship is because there's a specificity there. It's teleological, it's directed, and it's a very specific object. Um, and so if, if the lacrimarium, as you understand it, is in fact able to touch because it has to engulf yeah. its prey, and if it's too big, you know, it can't do that. And you notice it actually, it's, it's feeling around, it then it, so. it suggests that a single cell can touch. So a single cell has sense. And, and, and given the definition you have, it is aware. So this single cell is aware. Now how, wow, to me that, that to say that, that it can know, right? That single cell knows its prey and is aware of his prey, that actually boggles my mind more than anything else, mm. right? And so if, we're willing, if you're going, willing to, to, to go there, wow, that means that opens up an entire world, right? It opens up an entire world because now sensing is at the cellular level, no ne networks, no nerves, it's all about molecules. And so the question now is, can we find an analogous case in a plant that allows this. Now, if you notice, right, so it's interesting. So the, so the doter, the doter, first of all, can smell or it can sense the odor. Well, that's the question. Right, right, <laughs> right. So it detects a volatile. Right. How it, it does it, we don't know. It a volatile, again, with molecular changes that are akin to this lacrimarium. And now, if you notice, it's also able to wrap, right? So it's able, so it's able to wrap itself around the the twig of the tomato so it means so now the question is is that akin to the feeling of the touching of the lacrimarium as it's about to encapsulate its prey because now right the the doter vine has to depending upon the thickness of the thing and this is striking too it will look for the softest part of the plant right so it's not going to go and attach itself to the portion of the plant that is wooded because it's going to puncture holes so it can actually distinguish the texture of the plant surface itself and it's going to find the, the softest shoot that it can possibly do. Well, that to me is much, much more touching as you understand it because it, can, it, it actually moves on the plant and it's figuring out the part of the plant that it can Womp onto, then maybe we'll say, okay, it may not smell, but it certainly can touch. Right? It may not smell, but it can certainly touch. And that would be cool too. <laughs> Does that make sense, Marie? Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. I don't know. I have to think about that. I think, I think at this point, what I'd, just, like, what I'd like to do is to, well, I, just to follow the format where you know, let each um, presenter have like a two-minute sum up, and then I would like to. I have a couple questions, and I'm sure some of you do. Maybe bring the audience um, in. So, um, 
maybe starting with uh, Dr. George, you want to give a two or three minute sum up and then we'll go to Father Nicanor and then, and then we'll kind of open things up a bit. All right, let me see. I have some kind of remarks somewhere. <laughs> um, gee. Well, again, I, I would want to say that to, to sense is more than simply for a, a, simply having a physical change take place. Okay, to sense, you have to have a sense organ, an identifiable sense organ, and you have to have some reason to say that it's aware rather than simply detecting a molecule and then changing because of a shape change in the protein. Okay, uh, and. I don't know, it seems to me that Father is willing to concede that the plant does not see blue light. Am I wrong about that? Oh, see blue light, yep. Yeah, okay, so at least I feel that I've convinced him of something over the years. Um, so, but with regard then to the, um, with regard to the daughter, uh, I think it's interesting to think about whether, whether it's touching. I never really thought about that. But again, there's a lot of there, there's a lot of like if maybe whatever since we don't really know how it does it, and so given that the things that we do know about plants never involve sense organs, okay? There's no known sense organ in a plant, and that the things that it does it does by growing, and growing is something you don't have to sense to do. Um, I think that, again, the, the, the onus is on saying, here's a behavior that you can't explain without touching or smelling or, or seeing, and here's the organ by which that activity is performed. Thank you. So um, my response is, uh, I think we actually made progress this time around. Um, <laughs> we did, because the last time was the ACPA meeting. We had 20 minutes, and we had to be kicked off. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that was, we were kicked off for the next uh, set. Um, I, think, I think Dr. George and I agree that the phenomenon that we're describing requires explanation. And um, I am willing to explore the possibility that there's something analogous to what we as human beings experience as sensing. Um, the reason why I do not say that uh, plants see light is for the same reason I don't say worms see light, uh, because as a biologist, the seeing is often associated with an eye. And so there are organisms that are able to, we would say, sense light, but are not able to see light. So with regards to touching, you know, again, I'm going to have to go back and explore the, da the daughter phenomena. Mm. Uh, we don't know any organ just because we, again, as Dr. George points out, we haven't studied the daughter. And, and, we're, and um, what does it mean to say that this plant is able to move by extension and growth, uh, to wrap itself around its, para, uh, its host, to identify the soft parts of that host uh, in preference to the woody parts in order to uh, facilitate its own life cycle? Um, so, so when, when, so when it comes to sensing, you know, maybe, you know, we're still disagreeing about smell. Uh, and when I reread the Dianima, it's interesting because, uh, uh, Aristotle will, will talk about how they're different, they're different organs associated with smell. You know, he'll say our organs are the worst. Uh, and you know, he's wondering whether or not you can smell, um, in the water, which is really fascinating. Um, 
So we can't really smell in the water. We can't, but there are many other or organisms that can smell in the water, which tells you something about how organ, our noses and the other organs that are analogous to uh, our, our nose are, are very fundamentally different in the way that they process this, this uh, odorous information. So, um, so thank you again to Marie for this wonderful exchange. Uh, we'll probably have, you know, exchange number 12 in a year or two and we'll develop our arguments and she'll think about the daughter touching and I'll think about the daughter smelling. Um, and, but for me too, I think we have to also talk about that lacrimarium. I brought up that lacrimarium precisely because the last time we had the exchange, you seem to, to, to rule out molecular changes as any form of sensing. And I wanted basically to bring this particular example into play to, to illustrate how we have to be able to incorporate molecular changes in sensing of some sort because these single-celled organisms seem to do that.